I'm Dr. Karen Krieger, and I'm with the University of Louisville, and I'm very pleased to be here to do this presentation, and I'm glad you're sitting here to listen to this presentation. And I hope that we have time uh, for the questions at the end, and that's sort of all the stuff that I do. There are three. I was a teacher for JCPS before I went to med school, so I tend to be a little bit directive. Um, you should be able to define the terms of health equity, health inequality, health disparities, and social determinants of health by the time we finish this. You will be reviewing health outcome differences in U.S. domestic populations, nationally, regionally, and locally. And we're going to explore the effects of uh, racial inequality on health care outcomes, which that tends to be expensive. So this is the public health part of what I'm going to do talking about these terms of health equality, health equity, social determinants of health, and health disparities. Usually when I start a presentation, I try to know what my audience happens to be. So, hmm, does anybody want to, there's too many in here for me to go individually. I would love to know you all. But can someone tell me why they chose this particular session to come in? Would someone like to share that? Yes. Because I know it's a real issue. Thank you. This is global missions, and I know you all deal with things all over the world and where you go. And I just was pleased to have the opportunity to bring to you um, what's happening here in our country. Thank you for sharing that. When I was a teacher, I would tell them everybody had to say something to me every hour, and they would get their hands up really fast to get done and out, because I would ask the easy questions the first five minutes. Equality means each individual or group of persons is given the same resources or opportunities. And I don't have a pointer, but as you can see, the ladders are the same, but the apples are not within the reach of the guy. The tree actually has a problem. It's probably went through a hurricane or something. Equity recognizes that each person has different circumstances and allotments need to be different to provide opportunities for an equal outcome. So this young man here, he's able to get some apples. The ladder is a little bit taller, but maybe you can notice in that picture if there's a little bit discrepancy in the top of that tree. Equity is the absence of avoidable or remediable differences among groups of people, whether those groups are defined socially, economically, demographically, or geographically. Health inequities involve more than a lack of access to needed resources to maintain or improve health outcomes. It also refers to the difficulty when it comes to inequalities that infringe on fairness and human rights issues. And this is from the World Health Organization, these two definitions. So the CDC, um, Centers for Disease Control, believes Everyone should have the opportunity to be as healthy as possible. That's their definition of health equity. And as such, equity is a process, and equality of outcome is a um, result of that. Paula Dressler says the route to achieving equity cannot be accomplished through treating everyone equally because we're all unique. God made us. There's nobody on this planet like you, even if you had a twin. You're all here for a purpose, and you all have your uniqueness. We will achieve equity 
by treating everyone equity or accordingly to their circumstances. So here's some examples of how that could happen. Uh, the first example, a city cuts the budget for 25 community centers by reducing the operational hours for all centers by the same amount at the same time. That's equality. Equity would be the city determines which times and how many hours communities actually use their community centers, and they reduce the hours for centers that aren't optimizing their time. At a community meeting that's talking about local environmental health, everybody's invited, but 25% of the residents in the neighborhood don't speak English. So to be equitable, you would either provide a meeting in that language or translators, just like you would provide for someone who is deaf. You would have a signer. In public schools, um, the community public school may have computer labs. All of the schools have the same number, same hours of operation. But an equitable community would look at lower-income neighborhoods and to see how many of those families have computers and Internet in their home. And if the neighborhood is deemed not to have those accesses, what we call the digital divide, then those schools would have more computers and longer access times. So here's another example. Um, anybody in Jefferson County Schools who has a certain math score can qualify for advanced program. And so they go into the advanced program classes for middle school. If their family, friends, support, church has people that have already taken those advanced level math and science classes and they need help with homework, they have resources. But if their parents didn't even make it through grade school or high school GED math, they're at a disadvantage and there may not be funds to pay for tutoring for them. If you get into medical school with a certain MCAT score, you get the score, you get in, you pass your interview, then you get through these classes. And if there's someone in your family, your friends, your church, or your grouping that has had all of those classes before because they're doctors, they can help you as you go through with tutoring sessions, what have you. But if you're a first generation, or even if you're a second generation and nobody's done that before, you're at a, a little bit of a disadvantage. So when we talk about addressing inequities, the solutions have to be effective, sustainable interventions that redress the inequities, and they typically go beyond remedying a particular health inequality. They help to empower the group in question through systemic changes, such as law reforms, or changes in economics or educational opportunities. So is equity really the end result? I think we're trying to get to justice. So we have an equity tree where the young man had a taller ladder, but the whole deal needs to be somebody needs to fix the tree. It had to be propped up and maybe given a little bit of fertilizer so that other side had as many apples. That's where we want to be. That's justice. So health disparities are these preventable differences in the burden of disease, injury, violence, or opportunities to achieve optimal health that are experienced by socially disadvantaged populations. 
And these populations are defined by a lot of different things. They can be defined by race or ethnicity. They can be defined by gender or education standards. They can be defined by education or income, disability, geographic location, such as rural, urban, city, suburban, and sexual orientation. All of those are what I consider at risk for marginalization. And health disparities are, health disparities are inequitable. They're directly related to historical and current unequal distributions of social, political, economic, and environmental resources. So health disparities, not equitable. So health disparity is preventable. Differences in who's got what disease, who's being injured, who's subject to violence, who has opportunities to achieve optimal health. And maybe I have beat this horse to death, but this is out of the federal regulations as to who is socially disadvantaged. They're subject individuals that have been subject to racial or ethnic prejudices or cultural bias within American society because of their identities as members of groups without regard to their individual qualities. And this disadvantage has to stem from circumstances beyond their control. So this is a listing of people and groups that the federal government recognizes as socially disadvantaged by federal law. Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, which includes Alaskan, Hawaiians, anybody that's an enrolled member of a federally or state-recognized Indian tribe, and lots of Asian Pacific Americans. And being born in a country does not by itself suffice to make the birth country an individual's country of origin for purposes of being included within a designated group. So different kinds of health disparities, social, political, economic, environmental. Remember that they're inequitable and, and they're directly related to historical and current unequal distribution of resources. There are lots of factors that contribute to this. Poverty, environmental threats, inadequate access to health care, individual and behavioral factors, educational inequalities. Um, how many people are familiar with the concept of redlining? Quite a few. So redlining started in this country in 1933 and went on until 1951. It was um, supposed to help homeowners in this country. So they designated areas that they considered prime for development, and they were scored. So if you were in a, if you wanted to buy your house in a very high prominent area, you could. And then the communities were rated down, down, down for other communities. Now, the folks that were black immigrants or low income were only allowed to buy or live in places that were at the low level. And interesting enough, industry was allowed to go to the low levels. So you had housing and you had industry in these areas. And this is a map of Louisville, Kentucky, because this is my home, guys. So you're going to see a lot of Louisville and Kentucky as an example of what this is. But this is true in all the major cities of the country. So... Redlining was discontinued nationally in 1951, but the impact of disinvestment 
resulting from redlining is still evident in Louisville and most other cities. And the organization was the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and it was to booster housing market and home ownership across the nation. Um, but what has happened, because I didn't apply to everybody, we have now created neighborhoods that are poor, overcrowded housing with exposure to more severe levels of air pollution, contributing to chronic disease. So conventional redlining today um, in those neighborhoods that are redlined, and you can still find these city maps, refusal to provide delivery in certain areas. So Papa John's doesn't come. Uh, Kroger's doesn't deliver still. Loan denials, because your zip code is a certain zip code, you can't get a loan despite your credit worthiness, despite you made all your payments and you've done all the right things. Property insurance in these areas sometimes cannot be gotten in a neighborhood. Um, and then they have the ability to drop you from your homeowner's insurance altogether. Then there's this reverse redlining. So if you live in a certain zip code, your car insurance is higher. Even if you've not had any accidents, even if you've taken all the hours of the state of Kentucky. I remember when my daughter, who's 24, learned to drive. There's 80 hours we had to do. It was fun. <laughs> um, but depending on your zip code, that doesn't matter. Higher interest rates, excessive service fees for inferior products because of your zip code, payday loans, cash advantage advances, expedited tax returns. You'll see all of these businesses advertised in redlined areas. So this is one of my favorite slides, and uh, this was from a conference in 2006, a long, long time in my career. But it was a framework for health equity. And if you look here to the far left, you have these social inequalities of race, class, gender. You have institutional power of corporations, schools, health care access. Neighborhood conditions, their social, physical, environmental, residential segregation. I mean, it's taken her almost 25 years to get these to the forefront. These lead to risk behaviors in smoking, nutrition, physical activity, violence, and sex. And this little guy here that's pointing down, that is um, education, whether they have knowledge about those things. And if they don't, of course, you've got disease and injury as a result, infectious, chronic disease, injury, intentional, and unintentional. You've got genetics here, and between all of this comes your infant mortality and life expectancy. And in certain parts of our country and our state, infant mortality is higher here than in some third world countries. So health inequities leading to health disparities. So here's another example. I use redlining as one, but here's another one. Uh, food deserts. Who knows the defin definition of a food desert? Quite a few. So a food desert, you don't have accessibility to sources of healthy food measured by a distance to a store or the number of stores in the area. So if you go to zip codes 402, 11, and 12, you'll see lots of fast food places. Try to find places that have fresh fruits and vegetables. It's really difficult. Individual level resources can affect accessibility, such as family income or vehicle 
availability. So Kroger's, and I hope I'm not offending anybody, but you know, it just came into my mind because in the last three to four years, they've closed two in marginalized neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods had to come up with a van to ship people to the nearest Kroger's. Neighborhood-level indicators of resources such as the average income of the neighborhood and the availability of public transportation. Um, all of Jefferson County has a problem with public transportation. One day we'll be able to go from Forts all the way to Shawnee on the, with our bikes. <laughs> but in terms of the infrastructure that other major cities have, subways or eels, we just don't have that. The consequences of this food desert higher risk of diet-related diseases like obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, which is the bread and butter of a family dog in Kentucky. So here's our map again, and I'm bringing it up again because I want to focus our attention to the redlining areas here. So underneath this panel, you see some more red, and this is looking at the Ohio River at the very top, and so we're looking at Shawnee and Chickasaw and those areas there. And then where we are now in this facility is on this side, the northern side. So we're going to get into recognition of health outcome differences between Americans nationally, statewide, and locally by looking at the social determinants of health. What are health inequalities in the context of social determinants of health? What's the effect of health inequalities on the health of Americans? So the social determinants of health are conditions in the environments in which people are present, where they are born, where they live, where they learn, go to school, where they work, where they play, where they worship, where they age. It affects a wild range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risk. So basically, anywhere, um, I'm thinking of a particular Arthur who writes about living in New Jersey. And I say that because my daughter is considering moving there. And everybody's lived in the same neighborhood in the same houses for two and three generations. And so they are born there, they live there, they work there, their schools are there, they play there in their soccer teams, they worship there in their churches, and that's where they age and die in their neighborhoods. So this map is from the government's 2020 Healthy um, America. There were goals set for 2020. There are also goals for 2030 because we kind of didn't make 2020. If you look at this slide, which you're going to see this part several times in the next few minutes, it looks at neighborhood and built environments. It looks at health and health care, social and community context, education, and economic stability. We're going to look at those different areas in our journey here. And so some examples of social determinants include the ability, availability of resources to meet daily needs, safe housing, local food markets, access to educational, economic, and job opportunities, access to health care services, quality of education, and job training. Um, we're going to come to a document that the health department has been putting out since 2008 called the Health Equity Report for Jefferson County. And I got to participate in gathering the data for the 2021 edition. Every four years, they bring out a new edition. What you're going to see slides here from 2017, the latest publication. And it is available online if you go to Louisville.gov and search out the Health Equity Report. You can see the whole thing. But when I was gathering data, um, 
and the site that the data was being, for the most part, generated from was at the corner of 37th and River Park at a Dare to Care food bank. There were adults that were wanting to have education and adults that wanted to have trade skills, and those were some of the needs of that neighborhood. Some other examples of social determinants include the availability of community-based resources in support of community living and opportunities for recreational and leisure time activities, transportation options, public safety, and social support. Those are all social determinants. Social norms and attitudes are part of the social determinants of a community. Discrimination, racism, distrust of government, exposure to crime, violence, and social disorder, presence of trash and a lack of cooperation in the community. Um, I went to Philadelphia last month, and I was a block from Temple University. And I was, there's nothing in Louisville that compares to those neighborhoods around that university in the terms of that community factor. It was the paper and the garbage and living in those conditions. Social economic conditions, that is concentrated poverty and the stressful conditions that accompany it. So I got stressed, and I was only visiting. I knew I could get on a subway and get back to the hotel, but then I knew there were people that were living their lives in those communities. Other examples, residential segregation. So some of you may not know that African Americans couldn't live anywhere they wanted until 1963 with the federal open housing law. And so that accounts for a lot of these neighborhoods that have the problems that we see. Language and literacy. In my clinic, we have nine different languages. And so when people come into the country, they only have like nine months to establish themselves and to learn a language. Um, how many in here have taken a foreign language? Uno, dos, tres. A whole bunch of people. How long did it take you to learn it? Two years? Yeah, because, you know, what you get on whatever platform you're using isn't re representative of the nuances of when you go to that culture, right? And so it takes people a long time to acclimate. Then there's the access to mass media and emerging technologies, cell phones, Internet, social media. It's what we define as the digital divide. And this hit me right in the face March of 2020 when COVID came. Because I'm old. I'm the oldest one in the clinic. And they thought, okay, we're going to put Karen on the phones and the video platform. She's going to do telemedicine. <laughs> well, that was the challenge in itself. But the fact is, if you look at the data, 99% of Americans are supposed to have phones, right? But are they all iPhones? You know, there are a lot of people with flips. There are a lot of people who don't have cameras. There are a lot of people who don't know how to use what they got. And so as I started on telemedicine, that became very evident to me that my population, being that they're older and that they were in communities without these resources, I would have three generations trying to figure out how to talk to me on the, the video platform. The digital divide, and that's not just in urban Louisville, that's in rural communities, right? And I think that's part of our Build Back Better plan to increase the infrastructure digitally here in our country. And then, of course, there's culture. There's culture that has to be accounted for. So let's talk about economics. Here's that little gizmo from 2020. 
and I promised you we would come back to it and talk about different parts. So economic stability is a part of looking at social determinants of health, which includes employment, food insecurity, housing instability, and poverty. And so compared to whites, black Americans face the same risk of unemployment today as they did in the 1960s. And between 2007 and 2013, the net worth of the median black household fell from 10% to 8% of the median white household wealth. And a median white household now has a net worth 13 times greater than the median black household. And in 2000, the median black household had an income that was 66% of the median white. 2015, that figure was 59%. So I have to I have a confession to make. Um, I do a lot of presentations on a lot of different social issues. Part of my hat is endowed chair of urban policy for the university. And so, and also, I'm an HIV provider for the, since it came in the 80s. And so I'm used to looking at data that the government provides to us. There's a lot of holes in the data if you've looked at it for the last 20, 25 years and know what was there and what's here now. Uh, one of the problems that I found was that I couldn't find a pie chart from the census of 2020. We finished that, right? The data's out there. But there wasn't a pie chart to tell me racial percentages. I had to go to private places, and finally I just said, okay, i got to go to the 2010 census, what it looked like. And from the private consortiums, I know that that's increased a little bit. But we are having some problems in looking at what's actually happening in this country. So let's look at this data from 2019 and 2020. The blue is pre-COVID, and the brown is May of 2020. That's, we didn't have a vaccine. We were getting hit hard. And that's kind of when I got mine. But if you look at the blue, for African Americans, their unemployment rate has always been, has been twice that. Here we have homeless populations. And most minority groups make a, a larger share of the homeless population than in the general population. So the top line, dark blue, um, black population, the U.S. population, which is, okay, so African Americans compose 12% to 13% of the U.S. population. But on this map, um, that's quite a bit more of the homelessness. This one is a little busy, but all I'm going to point out to is the, um, where is it? It's food insecurity. And this is black non-Hispanic families with food insecurity. And so you see that line is far and above the other populations we have in our country. So I only have an hour, so when you get get tired of looking at one area and switch over to another area. Here we're going to education from our little diagram. And so of the social determinants of health, education includes early childhood education and development, enrollment in higher education, high school graduation, language and literacy. And this is a graph from 2016. And when we're looking at Numbers of these hatch marks are those that have a bachelor's or higher degree. And these bottom dark greens, 
that have less than high school completion, and that's the highest that they ever obtained. So Hispanics tend to, um, from this graph, they are being glass ceilinged out a bit here. Of course, whites are not being glass ceilinged. They got like 35% here of bachelors or higher. Blacks 21%, Hispanics 15 Asians 54%, Pacific Islanders 18%, American Indians or Alaska Natives 15 two or more races about 34%. So what this represents is that people of color aren't, they're not at the same spot educationally here. When you have education equality, when you have higher levels of education, you have the following outcomes. You live longer. You have an increased likelihood of obtaining or understanding basic health information and services needed to make choices. You guys talk to doctors, right? They just don't tell you you're going to do this, this, and this. I have to admit I'm guilty of that. Um, I don't get far with it. But if you are older than me, it's, it's a done deal. Whatever you want goes. But if you're younger, then I may spend some time trying to convince you. But people make choices about what health care they're going to engage in, what services they're going to engage in, what tests they're going to do, what vaccines they're going to do. People have those choices, and if you're better educated, you're better able to make those choices to your favor. Whoops. What's this? Okay, so if you have poor health, you have risk to your academic success. Teen pregnancy, poor dietary choices, inadequate physical activity, emotional abuse, substance abuse, gang environment, involvement. So it behooves us to make people healthy, I think. Let's talk about social and community context. Civic participation, discrimination, incarceration, social cohesion. And here, this is that slide that I got from uh, 2010 census data. And you can see that the UK blue uh, is the white population, and then the kind of lime green are African Americans in this chart, and lime green represents um, Hispanic on this chart here. So I'm going to focus a little bit here. I said 12 to 13 percent is African Americans, the population in this country. And there are some people that are keeping up with data. The Federal Bureau of Prisons is keeping up with data. So this slide is from January 9th, 2021, and the big yellow deal at the top represents black incarcerated individuals, and the blue at the bottom, white. And if we look at the numbers, um, African Americans make up 38% of the incarcerations. And the United States is in top of incarcerated individuals in the country. And Kentucky is in the top five of states in this United States with incarcerated individuals. Um, yeah. So if we're looking at a percentage of 13.4% of the general population in this country, um, but we've got 38% are hmm, not quite the same. I went back and I said, okay, what's, what's going on now? Has things changed? And this is November 6, 2021, and we still have 38% and, uh, of incarcerations. 
So let's look at health and health care, my favorite. And I have taken this from the Kentucky Minority Health Status Report. This is the latest report for the state of Kentucky. This is 2017. And the population of African Americans or blacks in this state is 8%. How many people are from Kentucky? Not many. Well, you're going to learn about Kentucky, okay? You'll learn about Kentucky today. Um, So if we look here, 25 years and older who have a bachelor's degree or higher by race, ethnicity, uh, gender type, we're looking at blacks 14.3%, whites 22.6% for males. Females a bit higher, uh, but we still are a little behind there. Poverty rates, blacks are the UK blue, and if you look by age, um, 65 and older for Asians doesn't look too good. But uh, blacks tend to have a little bit more generally. Unemployment. Um, Hispanics have the highest unemployment rate in Kentucky despite the fact that we have the racetrack and the fields. Does that count? <laughs> in some places it doesn't. Uh, but still... Um, blacks and Hispanics do have higher unemployment rates. This is an interesting slide talking about the Kentucky Department of Juvenile Justice statewide. So again, we have whites are green and blacks are the UK blue. And all referrals per 100,000 of juveniles or African Americans, which are almost three times higher than white juveniles in the system, Law enforcement referrals per 1,000, 76% for blacks. School-related referrals higher, but look at the cases diverted per 100 referrals. Fewer black cases get diverted than white cases. Ownership, renter-occupied homes. Owner is the blue K blue. Red is the renter-occupied. And you can see the discrepancy in numbers there. Uh, This is obesity. Now, um, I had an opportunity to to be in Eastern Europe a few years ago, and I looked around at those people, and I said, hmm, I cannot practice here ever. My bread and butter, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, hyperlipidemia, I didn't see that over there. They were wearing their nice little leather shoes, and they were walking everywhere, and they had streets and ways to get around, and so that wasn't an issue. But... They just recently published a report that before COVID, there were eight states in the United States that had 35% of the population, adult population, in the obese range. Since COVID, it's now 16 states where 35% of the adults are in the obese range. Guess where Kentucky is? Well, yeah. We're always, unless it's something really bad, we're always 50, 49, 48. We're always at the bottom of the health indicators. So life expectancy. Hmm. Um, Who lives the longest and who doesn't? So black males actually have the shortest life expectancies in Kentucky, and white females have the longest. And here we're looking at infant mortality rates, and black babies die more often than whites or Hispanics. And as I looked at the data, which I'm 
can't show everything. I said, okay, does it have to do with smoking that this is an issue? Actually, black mothers smoke less than white mothers, but they still have a higher infant mortality in this state. And strokes and heart attacks, let's talk about strokes for a minute. Higher levels in African Americans in Kentucky. Asthma, higher levels of African Americans in Kentucky. Anybody have a reason for that? I didn't throw out that redlining. But if you travel to the West End and you see all the factories and you see all the, you know that's actually that part of the city has the highest number of asthma medications prescribed. Diabetes, again, the UK blue. And here, death rates for diabetes. Not only do we get more of it, we die of it faster. I'm really proud of this because um, this was done in 2008. It was a PBS special, and it was sent to 180 affiliates. It was a seven-piece documentary. You had to watch it for seven weeks in a row, and you can actually go online and buy this now. It's still up there, called Unnatural Causes. And it was talking about how health inequities affect health outcomes. And the very first hour was in sickness and health, and it was shot right here in Louisville. So they were looking at connections between healthy bodies, healthy bank accounts, and skin color. And our opening episode travels to Louisville, Kentucky. This was the beginning of the health equity reports for Jefferson County. And so this was one of the pieces mapping out health and inequity across Louisville. So District 5, the lady in the far left, her life expectancy is 69.8 years. She lives in Portland, and her median income, and this was done in 2008, was 24000 a year. District 16 is in the northern part of the county. His life expectancy was 79.8 years with a medium income of 79000 Now, remember I just showed you a slide where white women were supposed to live longer, right? This isn't happening here. And if you can remember the redlining where she lives, that little dip there is the Ohio River. We're talking about Portland, Chickasaw, Shawnee Park neighborhoods. And so this is the front copy of the health equity report for 2017 from our health department. And it does have data and breaks down to our um, ethnicities. And black and African Americans make up 21% of Jefferson County, Kentucky. And inside of the documents, you'll see the neighborhoods that I've attributed to. In 2011, no, the 2014 had the green and then the 2017 had the blue. They renamed it as East Core, West Core, East Metro. I have no idea. The person who did that went back to Texas because she, she did not know the neighborhoods. When you do work like this in your communities, you need to talk to the people where they live and how they identify. So I identify with the green and had to figure out the blue, but you still see that little hook where the Ohio River is at the top representing 402, 10, 11, and 12 zip codes. And so here's our red line map again. Try to figure out the red, and you can see the red extends all the way behind my little blue insert. 
So African Americans live primarily in the red-lined areas up there by the river. And white Americans live primarily here, but they're scattered a little. If we're talking about life expectancies um, here, Shawnee Park waterfront, 69.64 to 71.79 years. Over here, 78.61 to 82.21 years. So we're looking at almost 10 years difference in life expectancy because of where you live. And this breaks it down a little bit more. Um, Again, for Jefferson County, uh, the black male is going to die sooner. Looks like Hispanic females have a longer life than me. (laughs) Okay. Outcomes that lead to death in the United States, the number one is heart disease, cancer, and COPD. This is going to change because COVID is going to come in at number three. In Louisville, it's cancer, heart disease, and COPD. So if you're living in an industrialized area where you're exposed to carcinogens, uh, you're going to have a higher incidence of that. And here that is bigger for you to help you see. Infant death. So you have higher deaths per 1,000 live births, the darker the color on this map. And again, you see in that 402, 10, 11, and 12, Portland, Shawnee, Chickasaw area, infant mortality as opposed to the other part of the county. Asthma, remember your redlining. Tobacco use, they did in the city about 20 years ago prohibit smoking signs in the West End and alcohol advertisements. So when I grew up um, in the West End, I knew I was home when I was four years old because there was this big whiskey bottle on the top of this industrial place. And so I knew I was almost home when I could see the whiskey bottle. Now we don't have the signs of the alcohol and the cigarettes there, but we still have the residual effects. Mental health, again, overcrowded, poverty, red line zones, homicides. We're breaking our 2016 record here. We had gone down, but uh, we're on the path to blow it out of the water. Diabetes, heart disease, stroke, arthritis. As a family doc, I have to know, if I'm going to tell my patient who has arthritis or BMI that's over 25. If you don't know what those BMI numbers mean, I'm going to give you a little bit of education. Normal is 18.5 to 25. 25.5 up to 29.5 is considered overweight. 30 to 34.5 is considered class 1 obesity. 36 to 39.5 is class 2 obesity. And 40 and over is morbidly obese. We know that some people have better and worse outcomes based on their pre-existing health conditions. So if your BMI is 25, over 25, you have a worst outcome. If I tell somebody whose BMI is over 25, I need you to do 150 minutes of moderate exercise a day. Moderate means when you walk, you can't sing a song. You're walking that fast. You're working that fast. And you don't have to do 30 five times a week. Park the car, and it's easy if you go to this church, Park the car way far away and count those minutes coming in and out as part of your daily walking. But if it's not safe, if there are no sidewalks, if there are no green spaces to walk in, then I can't use that tool to help arthritis, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity, hyperlipidemia, you name it. We have a new YMCA at 17th and Broadway. 
It's called the West End YMCA. And it's beautiful. I've been there, and it's a wonderful facility, except the West End goes to, who knows the biggest street number to the West End and Broadway? What is it? There's actually a 44th. So if you call 17th and Broadway West End, and the street that is furthest from there is on the 44th, they're closer to Indiana's Y. And I love the Y. Okay. I'm a former soccer mom. Cancers, again, remember your redlining. Okay, we're to part three. Results of racial inequality on health care outcomes. COVID-19 arrives and it shines a light on our system. This is from a conference that was given about a year ago. It was from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And the entire 150 presentations had something to do with COVID because we were in the throes of COVID. And this woman, Sue Bornstein, was from the American College of Physicians. They sponsored her to give this lecture. And she put together this slide because people were coming into the hospital and the same treatments were being given, but certain populations were dying faster and more horrendously. And so people began to look at, if we're giving them all the same stuff, we don't have much to give them, but if we give everybody the same stuff, how come these folks don't walk out like these other people do? So she looked at improving laws and policies that shape community conditions. That was the upstream. Social institutional inequalities considered racism, discrimination, classism, poverty, ableism, sexism. What's ableism? Disabilities and a little bit of aging there. Midstream is addressing an individual's social needs, living conditions, housing, transportation, violence, access to good jobs, education, exposure to toxins and income. And that would help address downstream effects, health outcomes and symptoms of poor nutrition, chronic disease, communal disease, toxic stress, infant mortality, and life expectancy. So if we dealt with the things upstream, we identified and dealt with midstream, then we would improve what was happening downstream. I should have flipped this a little sooner. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I'll give you a minute to process that. I think this is going to be my second favorite slide of all of my career. Okay. Oops. Larry, we have trouble. I think this is, I had 100 slides in my presentation, and I think she loaded one. Can you come and find the other part? And while he's doing that, I'm going to, in the old days, oh, wow, you're here. I'm so glad you're here. In the old days when I gave a presentation, it was on these little slide sets. Does anybody remember those? And then those plastic pieces of paper that you'd put over this thing and it would project up on the screen. And then you'd carry a hand copy too. And so uh, the 2021 version for me is I have a paper copy. I have a flash in my pocket. I have downloaded this stuff and I emailed it to me. <laughs> so if tech doesn't work, I'm equipped to go to the old school. And... I am so sorry uh, that we have to break, 
but I'm going to go old school. You got it? No. Okay. So I'll just talk from the paper. I'm good. So Sue Bornstein's and the data from the American College of Physicians, black and Latinx persons in the U.S. have been three times more likely to contract COVID-19 than white residents and nearly twice as likely oh, to die from it. You're wonderful. There are wings and halos. We can't see it, but I can. Some counties with a majority of black residents have almost six times the death rate compared to predominantly white counties. In New Mexico, Native Americans comprise only 11% of the population, more than half of the COVID-19. Oh, yes, she's holding up that sign. Cases, I'm getting there. I'm in the last part. In the Navajo Nation in the U.S. Southwest, up to a third of the residents don't have access to clean running water and or plumbing. 30% of Navajo dwellings may not have electricity. Many multi-generational housings are commonplace in the Navajo Nation as well as many other low-wealth low communities in the U.S. Social distancing is very challenging. And the digital divide is especially pronounced in lower-income communities, which limit access to telemedicine and other health-related services. So why is this? They looked at a greater number of black and Latinx workers are unable to work from home compared to white workers. Certain industries have workers that are predominantly minorities, and they face higher rates of COVID-19. Have you noticed the price of chicken has gone up? Well, that was one of the populations that they were having a lot of COVID-19 in those factories processing chickens, and those were primarily minority workers and the meatpacking plants. And to get to work, these essential workers had to travel using crowded public transportation, increasing their risk of exposure. So they were using the subways and the L's and the buses to get to where they needed to go. Longstanding disparities in nutrition and obesity played a crucial role in health inequities in the pandemic. So we knew that when children came in and they were in the obese range, they had a higher incidence of not doing well. 42% of children hospitalized with COVID-19, now this is in last year, had one or more underlying conditions with obesity being the most prevalent. Obesity is a state of chronic, low-grade systemic inflammation that predisposes to a cytochrome storm that influences the influence of COVID-19. Also heart attacks and strokes. So if you don't know, my generation, which I am not giving my age, but my hair tells it, my generation will have a longer life expectancy than his and hers and yours because there are higher incidences of hypertension, obesity, and diabetes in a younger age group than in our baby boomers, which is unfortunate because we've got that inverted triangle and the baby boomers are up here and the youngsters are down here. We're going to have to work forever. Oh, did I skip something? Oh, the impact. Oh, this is good. So that conference went in September of 2020, and November 17th of 2020, the CDC expanded its U.S. diabetic surveillance system, reflecting the social determinants of health. They were recognizing the impact of poverty, education, geography, access to care, and healthy food and transportation contributed to the diabetes in a region. Oh, stars.
They expanded the diabetes surveillance system with 15 new social determinants to help identify under-resourced areas in the United States and access the potential impact of health disparities on chronic diseases. So when they used to just go in their report and count people who had normal hemoglobin A1Cs, who had their pneumovaxes, who had what and who had this. Now they're looking at where people live, their communities, and what these social determinants do to make these people less healthy. Oh, I've got magic fingers since I saw that sign. I'm sorry. So let's talk about racial inequality and personal frames of reference. There's this word culture that I kind of flew over. If you've never taken the implicit bias test from Harvard, I encourage you to do so. We all have implicit biases. An implicit bias is a reaction that you have that is made subconsciously, and it comes from your personal frames of reference and how you were raised. So when you go into that site for implicit bias, just Google implicit bias test, you can choose to see if you have implicit bias based on race, on gender, sexual orientation, obesity. A patient's experiences also comes into play, whether they take health care. So people in their 60s in the South can remember a time when you didn't go to the doctor's office because they were all white and you had to go in through the back door so you'd rather die. So that influences how they receive health care. And how do you address your staff by name? I teach my residents and students, never call someone older than you by their first name. We're in the South. It's Mr., Ms., Mrs. Because if you call someone who's black by their first name, they're going to think, well, they grew up with a black maid. And that's how they were taught to address that person. And that person's blood pressure goes up and has to be treated with more medicines because of that. And they may not say anything about that. They just don't come back. How many people have read that book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Locks? A few of you. So in the 1950s, this woman went to John Hopkins University, and she had cervical cancer. And the professors there took a piece and found that in all of the world, it was only her cells that they could grow and experiment on cancer treatments. Only hers. No one else that was God's gift to us. And from those cells have come polio treatments and all kinds of things. Her family never got a dime. She never signed a consent. They can't even get health care at John Hopkins. People know this story. And then there's the Tuskegee report. From 1932 to 1972, for 40 years, 400 black men that were identified as having syphilis in the South were denied treatment, even though the treatments came during World War II. Because someone was doing a study to see what happens to people when you don't treat syphilis. People know that. If you don't know it, they do. And that's part of their personal frames of reference. Hidden in Plain Sight is an article that came out in August of 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's talking about how we in medicine 
are using race-based medicine to make decisions about our patients, and there's no scientific evidence to support it. And that's trying to be changed. We know that if the medical provider has a similar background to their patient, they're going to spend longer time in the office with that patient. That's been proven over and over again. And if the provider has faulty expectations of what the patient is actually able to do, I want you to eat six servings of fresh fruits and vegetables every day. But the only thing that's within walking distance of that person's home is the McDonald's and the Wendy's and somebody else. If there are no gyms in your neighborhood, how are you going to walk? If it's not safe because you're afraid of getting shot, how are you going to walk? Low-paying jobs without adequate medical insurance, medical leave, or knowledge accessibility to the Federal Family Medical Leave Act for chronic disease um, surveillance is a barrier. Some people are working every single day, and their health insurance covers one physical a year and one acute visit. And because it costs so much, and these people are going to take what's most cost-effective, they totally ignore that they have to come in for diabetes, hypertension, and all these other things until they wind up in the hospital, and we wind up paying $100,000 for the cardiac stent. We're really good at that. So issues of marginalized populations, lack of medical literacy about formularies, co-pays, deductibles, chronic disease management, limited community resources in their neighborhoods for primary care, specialty care, urgent care, and pharmacies, issues of transportation as a barrier to timely arrival to appointments. Um, Okay, so Federation is the transportation system for Medicaid. And I have patients who come to me and have a 9 o'clock appointment, but the Federation bus picks them up at 6 in the morning, And if I finish with them at 10, they're still there at 12 waiting to be picked up to go home. But that's the system that's attached to their insurances. Patients of color have poor health outcomes nationally, regionally, and locally with a myriad of sociological conditions, reflective of complicit historical and current racism. And if we don't address these, recognize them, and address them, we will continue to be the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Of all the developed countries, we spend the most per person of dollars. And we have the worst outcomes. The life expectancy of Americans has been declining compared to the other developed countries. Even our men are getting shorter. Somebody's watching that. <laughs> the rapid spread of COVID among communities of color is not because of race or ethnicity. It's a risk factor for disease spread. It's racism, not race. And Thomas Sequest is from the uh, Navajo Nation. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice and in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane because it often results in physical death. That was from Dr. Martin Luther King. And this is the new symbol for 2030 America. And there you got health care and education and economics. Um, here you have the social connections and community. And here you have the housing and where people live. So remember access to health care, primary care, health literacy, neighborhood and the built environment to support foods, healthy eating habits, crime and violence, environmental conditions, the quality of the housing. And this is all references in here. And... Do I have time? Probably not. <laughs> but I'm going to be around here. And so 
I really thank you for your patience. And if you have questions and you have to go somewhere else, I totally understand. They have this. It's been downloaded wherever you guys put your stuff. And uh, I'm available to talk to anybody about it. Thank you. Okay.